Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for being an awesome God, Father, for providing for us, Father, that you are a God that takes things seriously. You are rolling up your sleeves, Father. You have a purpose and a, a plan, and, and you have a desire for each and every single one of us here in this room. I pray, Father, that we would share the good news, that we would stand tall, Father, for you, and that as we look at the things that are in front of us, Father, that we'd be uncompromising, unwavering, as we are tested and tried, Father, through the wildernesses that we go through, Father. Strengthen us and encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If uh, you were here last week, crazy enough to come back, you realize we had a heavy message on repentance. And Jesus was there being baptized. He's kicking off his ministry. And as he's starting the ministry of his life, uh, he's, he's walking out to be baptized, and John the Baptist is there. The dove descends upon him, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Setting Jesus aside from really everyone else and everything else to say there's something distinct and different about Jesus. And so now we, we see that immediately, as, as he comes up out of the water, he's being led into the wilderness to be tempted to go through his trials for 40 days. That's Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 1. It says, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil, the head honcho of all evil himself. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. <laughs> so you go, gee, I, I, I guess after 40 days of not eating, I guess you can start to be hungry. Jesus is starting to be hungry, and he's starting to be attacked by the devil. And it is strange as you look at life, and when the enemy comes against you, rips you apart, it seems that it's when you're at your lowest or weakest point. It does seem sometimes that after a great victories in Jesus, it's interesting to say he was led by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit. It wasn't that Jesus did something wrong. It wasn't that this was a bad thing that happened. This was what God planned and set aside for him. And he was to be tempted, to be tested. He's going to pass all of these with flying colors, but sometimes we don't feel like being tempted. Sometimes we don't feel like going into a wilderness. A wilderness was a wild area. You think of uh, wild flowers, uh, 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 wild trees, a, a forest if you would, a wilderness, meaning that it's haphazard. Things are thrown together. Whichever which way the wind blows is where the seed plants a tree and that's how it grows. There's no rhyme, there's no rhythm, there's no organization. And sometimes in our life we're going, Lord, there's no rhyme, there's no rhythm, there's no organization. We're in a wilderness in our life. Why is this and what are you doing, Lord? Obviously, it must be me. I've got to be in sin. I'm doing something wrong. And the Lord's saying, no. You're being led by the Spirit. You're be, you, are, you are filled with the Spirit. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you ask Him to come into your life, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And not only does the Spirit indwell you, it's guiding you and directing you. And you go into this situation where Jesus is realizing he's underneath an attack and he's going to be fasting. He's praying through this. He's got to stand his ground. And after 40 days of being uh, without food in the, in the desert, he now says he's hungry. It's now preoccupying his mind that he's hungry. I don't know if you... Uh, know too much about this, but uh, whenever you start to fast, normally, if I ever fast, I'm, I'm a real tough guy and go for about three days. And if you've ever tried to fast, the first day is just all and out torture. It's just, you have to gut-wrenchingly discipline yourself not to eat when everything goes that way. The second day, things kind of settle down into place a little bit, and it gets to be real weird. You're no longer hungry after a period of time. And then, technically, if you know anybody that's written a book on fasting, if you've talked to some real serious fasters, people that really give up food for a long period of time, you can really go about 40 days without eating, and during that time, you're never hungry. 
What happens when you, know, you're, you get hunger pains when your stomach is contracting? When it starts to contract, it tells the brain, it says you're hungry, and then you go through mental anguish for food. Well, once you haven't eaten for a while and your stomach's, you know, size of a, a grape, then you're going, oh, you know. It, it gives up on the signal, and it stays that way until all of a sudden, after about 40 days of, of not eating, you start to go into starvation. Your body starts to cannibalize itself and starts to break down. And, and, and then you're, at that point, the hunger starts to come back and says, hey, nut, you better eat or we die. And so Jesus now, he's gone through his 40 days and he's becoming hungry. Starvation is taking place at this point and he's breaking down. You can imagine the, the anguish of what's going through there. And in the midst of all of this, and, and it's still a, a debate on whether Jesus was fighting the devil for 40 days or at the end of 40 days, the devil comes up and gives him his best shot. I'm not sure how that's read. I'm not sure what happened. I, I believe Jesus was duking it out the whole time and, and trying to combat all the thoughts and the processes and everything that's there. And finally now at the end of 40 days, Satan's got to come up. The devil comes up and he starts to whisper in his ear to challenge him to do something. And the devil said to him, he says, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What Satan is doing is his temptation is to challenge Jesus on his authority, on actually on who he is. He says, If you are the Son of God. Well, a few days before this, whenever the baptism was, we just heard God say, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. We just heard the word of God. We just heard God scream it from the clouds in front of everybody that there's something different. And yet Satan comes up and says, well, we'll just forget all about that. Are you really? Satan's tool, his trick, is to cast doubt on things that you and I both know, should know, and should be easy for us to say, well, gee, oh, I, I should have had that figured out. And, and to question, to doubt, are you really? If, 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 if you are the Son of God. And he's coming in and he's undermining Jesus. And, and notice, if you would, he's saying, Jesus, you've got something to prove. And so many times now, the temptation is prove something. And notice what the devil's saying is, no, now you've got to prove something to me. If you are, then you do this to prove something to me. Because all of a sudden, Jesus, I'm the devil and I'm going to come walking up to you. And all of a sudden, it, it, it doesn't matter what God said. It's whether or not I think you're okay. And Jesus is going to say, I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to sit down there and, and, and turn around and, and, and think I have to prove anything to you, devil. And what's his answer? He says, it's written, I'm not going to care by what man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I'm going to go by God's word, and I've got nothing to prove to you. We get off track. We get blindsided. We get playing the devil's games. And next thing you know, we're trying to prove something to somebody that doesn't even matter. When we just lost the very thing of that essence of, of trying to prove something to God and to serve God. We as Christians, we say, God, it's you. And there are things that come in and they tempt. They draw us off. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you have fasted, where, where all of a sudden, if, if you've gone a day, 24 hours, you're, you're into 36 hours into your fast. And all of a sudden, it seems like everything starts to come alive to you in a certain sense. Every smell, every thought. I've been starving and going, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to do this. And you're driving down the road. And all of a sudden, you know, there's the sign for McDonald's, which you can't even stand a Big Mac anymore. You've eaten so many of them. You'd rather, you know, you can't handle that. By the time you're 45, you're like, duh, that's dog food. And then you see that sign for McDonald's. You're going, mmm, ooh, that's good. Oh, you're driving down the road and you're going, Man, that's satanic that they got big hamburgers up here. What kind of evil plan is that to put that big hamburger up there? It's to torture me. And you go, it's just an ad, Dave, for McDonald's. Get over it. And when you're, and when you're, when you're, when you're 
underneath attack when, when you have a tendency to be oversensitive sometimes. And when you're oversensitive, you have a tendency to overreact. I love the, uh, the, the hillbilly song, I'll call it, my bluegrass station that I like listening to. And the guy saying that he's the old poor starving guy, can't feed his family, can't feed his kids. And he sings the song and he says, you know, I've got five pounds of possum in my headlight. <laughs> Lord, if I could just hit it, everything would be all right. <laughs> and to know that you're driving down the road and you're seeing that possum, you go, there's dinner. I can hit it. <laughs> and you have a tendency to overreact, to overdo things. And hopefully you go, gee, Lord, I'm not that bad of shape that I'm driving down the road trying to get dinner. Lord, things are okay. And, and, and we, have, we have to sit down there and, and, and focus our heart and our mind. And when something that can be so common becomes such a temptation, and, and that's, that's the power of temptation. It draws us away from the things of God. And Jesus, you know, that piece of bread, he's looking at every rock and he's saying, yeah, the temptation was to say, Jesus, use your power, use your power just to satisfy yourself. Eat something. Have a piece of food, a piece of bread. And you go, well, that, you know, what's a loaf of bread to you and I? That's not like something I'm going to, you know, lose my salvation over. And yet for Jesus, because of his heightened sense, because he was battling, because he was hungry, and now the temptation was to say, hey, Jesus, you proved something to me. You do what needs to get done and, and, and take your powers of God in order to just have a meal. And it was a twist. What the idea was is very simple. It's Jesus, compromise, compromise your your power and your position in order to prove something to the devil, to someone else or to something else. And that temptation comes into us. That's all any of you and I ever struggle with is a temptation, is to say, Lord, I'm compromising. I'm compromising and doing something to gratify myself. And Jesus corrects him. He corrects him and he says, no, it's God. And in the process, he's saying there's a, a problem. It's a hint. It's a shade of taking scripture off. And Jesus always corrects and says, no, I'm focusing myself on God. So the devil doesn't stop that. He goes for round two. He says, then the devil, he takes him up on a high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'm not sure how he does this, what happens. He could see all the men of time, space, and dimension, all the kingdoms, past, present, future. I don't, I'm not sure. He's showing him the world. And the devil said to him, All authority I will give you and, the, and, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours, Jesus. And so now he's making him a promise. And he says, I'm going to give you something. Here's the world. Here's the whole world and it's yours. Now this is rough. This is insane. This is the very thing that Jesus came into the world for was to gain the world. And now all of a sudden, Satan's offering it to him. And he says, you can have it all. I'll give it to you. We don't have to fight over it. You can have it all. One condition, you bow down to me. Well, first off, it's really important that we understand that Satan, though he be a liar, was correct about this. It was his to give. It belongs to him, and somehow or another we lose sight of that so many times. We, we live and breathe in a world, and a lot of us can turn around and say, Oh, this world stinks. This world's miserable. And how many times do we hear it? If there's a God, then why is this, you know, such a terrible place? Why is there war and famine and disease? And what kind of God would make such a thing? Well, the Bible's pretty clear on it. It says, well, you know, God made a nice planet it was all happy and smiles and and wonderful things gave it to man and said hey it's yours till the soil you do whatever you want but don't eat of the tree 
You eat of the tree, you lose it. Death comes into the land. Disease, sin comes in. By rebelling against the, the command of the Lord, by turning around, and as Adam and Eve, as they go and eat of the fruit, they therefore, what are they doing? They're listening to the beckoned commands of the serpent. The serpent is there whispering in their ears, saying, come on, come on over and eat, rebel against God, don't listen to God. And what happened in that transaction is rather simple. When Adam and Eve rebelled and they fell away from the will of God and pursued the will of the serpent, then Satan said, see, this is mine. They listen to me now. And Satan takes the possession of the land. The Bible refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. It refers to Satan as the god, little g, of this world. This is his turf, his territory. Clearly, when you do see the, the, the imagery of Jesus, when Jesus is coming into the world, it's a strange picture. He's the thief in the night. Jesus is the one who comes into this corrupt, polluted planet and he says, I'm going to come in and steal the hearts of some men and some women who are willing to go back to the will of God. And so what Satan does, if he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, since you love these you know, slimy people, these sinners that are fallen and rebellious towards you, if this is what you want, what a temptation to Jesus. Hey, this is everything I want. I want men. I want, I want people. I want the souls of Dave Brown. And Jesus could have had Dave Brown and everyone here and everyone else there, and Satan would have let go of me and given me all back to the Lord. And you go, what a beautiful thing. But it would have come at the expense of Jesus saying, I would have to bow my knee to the devil. And I'm sorry that goes against, you know, the number one rule and commandment of God. There's God. And we're going to do things God's way. And Jesus is saying, listen to this, he says, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to show love for Dave and all the other people that are listening and watching and caring. And when they see that the Son of God was killed and crucified and he did it for love because he cared for them, then those people, you and I, would choose, choose God. And, 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 and the number one principle is that we have to have a free will choice to turn around and to serve and to love God. If you don't choose God, then you would never have love. If I forced you to marry me at gunpoint, I would wonder the rest of my life, you know, whether or not you were going to put some arsenic in my pancakes in the morning. It's not love. But if you said, I'm giving up my mama and my daddy and I'm coming out to live with you and I love you and I'll do everything I can because I love you, then you have a bond of trust and respect and care. And it's the same thing. God says, hey, I may not get them all this way, but I'm going to get some that have supreme love. Choice is critical. And Jesus is saying, as much as I want it, as much as I care about it, as much as I can see there'd be so much less suffering underneath the hand of the devil, what I do gain is the will of God first and foremost, and I get them to decide. And you can't short circuit. You can't cut those things out. It's critical. And so God, and, and, and Satan is saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I will not have that happen. And so he turns around. His response is rather clear. He says, verse 8, And Jesus answered him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't call the shots. I'm calling the shots to you. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, in him only you shall serve. So Jesus once again corrects him, puts him back on track, back to God's word, God's plan, and God's purpose. And he's saying, don't allow the things of this world to compromise you. We had communion on Wednesday night. And we were talking about the way of, uh, of the world that it causes us to, 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 to compromise our ways. We said, if you lay down with the dogs, you get up with the fleas. And so many times, if we do things Satan's way, we have a tendency to have Satan's results. If we can do things God's way, then we have God's results. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship God in Him alone.
So many times in our life, there are things in this world that God wants to give us. There are things in this world that are okay for us to do. And yet, they can become sinful to us because we, begin, we can become obsessed with them. Take a boat. You can sit down there and, and there's many men in this world that would love to go out on the boat for their weekend. I've been working hard all week. I'm going to go out on the boat. I'm going to do some fishing. I'm going to relax. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus went fishing out on the boat and he relaxed. You can't tell me that that's sin, Pastor. And I would never want to say, owning a boat is a sinful thing. Everyone that has a boat, they're just, you know, living in sin. That, that'd be crazy. But I will tell you that people that do own boats can easily fall into the sin of owning a boat by allowing it to become sin in their heart. Well, I've got my boat. And it's, i got to make sure it's the biggest boat in the harbor. i got to get a big engine. i got to have this. It becomes an object of their pride. It becomes a god to them. Anyone who scratches my boat, I'd shoot them. You know what I mean? You don't ever touch my boat. My boat, that's what happens with my life. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to work extra time. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to make sacrifices to my family because i got to have my boat. And then the boat can become such a, an idol to the man. And when Jesus is saying, he says, you know, hey, you know, we may want, we may have certain things in this world, but it's bringing them back to the worship of God. And whatever we do with our life, and if we go out on the boat, we go live our life, and we want to live a simple life, we have to double check ourselves and to say, Lord, is this stumbling me from you? Or is it just something I do for a little relaxation and there's nothing wrong with this, Lord, and I want to continue? And I can answer that question if I always put it in light of, are you still at the top, Lord? Are you still in my life? Are you still working with me? And so we want to put this. He says, get behind me, Satan, and, and don't allow something to come in. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And so the devil doesn't give up, verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, well, go throw yourself down from here. For it is written, His angels, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So what Satan is doing is, first off, he's quoting scripture, and he brings him up to the top of the pinnacle, and he says, look, there's the center of town right here, the center of the universe. We've got Jerusalem. You're high up, standing above everybody. You jump off this building, and you know what scripture says? You're going to be fine. There's no way you can die, Jesus. So think of the glory and the fame. Everybody's going to think you're the superhero, Jesus, by jumping off the top of the building. And when they see when you're getting ready to splat on the pavement down there, whoosh, the angel comes and catches you. Don't you want the glory? Don't you want the fame? Look at how good you're going to look in front of everyone else. I'm sure God's got a long track record of always being maligned and being mud thrown at him. And the temptation would be to say, hey, I could look pretty good because of this. It looks bad when I have to go to the cross and die like a criminal. Now I could have all the people respecting me and seeing that I am God because I'm going to demonstrate something. There's a temptation there. But I, 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 I think there's something a little bit deeper. I think there's something more to what's being said here. Notice, if you would, that he's saying, his response is he's saying, verse 12, And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What, what was happening in this temptation was the devil was saying, here's scripture. Now I want you to take what is said, but I want you, listen to this, I want you, Jesus, to push God just a little bit so that God will move. That's the temptation. And what and what Jesus' response is, don't tell me that I'm going to tempt, to push, to force God into anything. Now, listen to what's happening here. You're watching scriptural wars, if you would. You're watching 
you know, Jesus quotes a scripture, devil quotes a scripture, Jesus quotes a scripture, devil quotes a scripture. And so many times you start to see that, well, first off, for you and I, we want to be able to be locked solid into what scripture says. We want to be able to make sure that when we see scripture, we put it into context. We interpret things correctly. That's why we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we just don't hop all over the Bible and pull out a half a verse here and half a verse here, and we come up with our own little formula for success. That's not understanding. That's not being a student, and, and it opens you up to the craftiness of the devil. And, and Jesus is turning around, and he says, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to tempt God. You're not going to push God. If I'm to stand up here, listen to this, and I jump over this, and even though Scripture tells me that I'm going to be okay when this happens, he says, I will not do this because it would cause me to force God to move. And Jesus says, I'm not going to force God to move. If I did that, then I would be tempting God. And I need to allow God to move in my life. So many times, there are things that are promised to you and I as Christians. Mark chapter 16, believers are going to speak in tongues. They're going to drink poison. They're going to, you know, uh, have serpents bite them. They're going to heal the sick. And there are things that are promised to you and I as Christians. And sometimes we can have the temptation to say, Lord, I want to see these things now. Lord, listen to this. What we want to do in our lives is to manipulate God. So if I turn around and say, well, Lord, I fasted for 40 days. I expect you to move now. I expect you to have this happen because I did something. There is a huge temptation that destroys your and my life because we develop bitterness against God because we believe we can manipulate God. And everything there is to say, you don't manipulate God. God promises that he'd heal us. It's a powerful promise. God will heal each and every single one of us. Problems arise in our hearts when we turn around and we want to answer the when, the where, and the how. Well, God, I want it done now. God, I want it done this way. God, it says in the scriptures that, you know, Jesus went in, he spit in the dirt, he picked up the money, threw it in the guy's eyes, and he healed him. And I expect that whenever I spit in the dirt and throw mud in someone's eye, I want them to be able to be healed of their blindness. Uh, you, you don't come up and orchestrate these things. You listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, please listen to me. You can argue and say, well, Pastor Dave, it is promised in Scripture that God will heal. And I will say, you're right. Listen to what's happening here. The devil is taking promises in Scripture and he is forcing them on Jesus to inflict them now. Did you hear this? This is a solid promise of Scripture that is given to the Messiah that the angels will take care of him. You're going to get caught before you hit the bottom. That's a promise. It's a promise of God. But there is a what? There is a manipulation of the promise by people that want to force God. And when you go into a situation and you're going to say, God, I am demanding you to move in the way, the time, in the fashion that I so desire, you are setting yourself up to stumble. When you should be able to go, God, I know your promises. I know that they're true. And listen to the whole sermon here. It's going to say, when it's based upon faith, in God and allowing God to move, God will move according to his promises. But please understand, you've got to understand that here's Jesus. Jesus is the big boy. He's the son of God. He's tougher, bigger, stronger than you and I could ever fathom in our most wildest dreams. And these are the temptations that attack Christ. Listen to this. It said, now verse 13, it says, now when the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. What do you mean every temptation? Jesus is out there. He didn't have the temptations that I have. I have temptations. And you can look at it and go, well, hey, Jesus, 
You know, if, if the devil's out there throwing him every temptation, well, where's the naked woman? How come he doesn't throw the naked woman in front of him and, and turn around and tempt Jesus that way? I thought he was tempted in everything. Well, the argument would be that Jesus is facing the major leagues here, and whatever happens in the minor leagues doesn't really matter. <laughs> if you can handle the big boys, well, of course you can handle the little things. Listen to this. So the temptation of the minor things that you and I have temptations with, Jesus is like, I've had to fight dragons. I'm not out fighting. I'm fighting the, the dragon, the devil. And listen to this. When the devil comes at you with this most powerful, fearful, spiritual attack, he's going to come at you and he's going to get you, listen to this, to twist Scripture. To take a good Scripture and a good promise, the things that God had said, Put them into doubt and questions in your mind and then turn around and twist it. Oh, just a hair, just a hair to put it into a different light so that it's going to force you to go outside of the will of God. So the big battles you're going to fight in your life are going to be for your mental stability your heart and your mind set upon God. What you think and what you believe is the biggest spiritual attack. Well, what about the naked woman? Oh, Pastor Dave, I'm, I'm tempted to do this. I'm tempted to do that. I'm hey, you know, we all got our battles. We all got our struggles, and that's the struggle where you're at. But if we can get you to believe a lie, then all those other things, then you're going to do the stupid things of committing adultery and doing all your drugs and partying and playing and doing all that other stupid stuff. You're going to fall easy to those things if you believe a lie, if you can twist the promises of God. And so every temptation, this is the things that are there, that God wants to uproot you and to knock you off. Now ask yourself some hard questions. Look at your prayer life. What do we spend most of our time praying for? Oh, Lord, I just want to be famous. If I could only make it on American Idol. I'm sure I'd win. Oh, and then at the end, I'd, I'd give all the glory to Jesus. Oh, yeah. We pray. Lord, when we get in the car, we got the little family. What do we pray for? Lord, we don't want to wreck by the time we get to wherever we're going. Keep us safe. Keep us strong. Protect me. I, I, trust me, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that in a sense. But the desire is for you and I that our prayers, listen to this, are consuming with, Lord, take care of me, protect me, bless me. Bless me, bless me, bless me. And do this this way, the way that I see it. And so little of our prayer life is to say, Lord, have your way with me. Jesus prayed in the garden. He says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, hey, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's the prayer of Christ. And I look at my prayer life, and you know what? I look at a lot of my prayer life, and I see that a lot of my prayer life really aligns with everything that Satan's been trying to get Jesus to be tempted to fall into. And gee, I think I'm praying the prayer of Satan over here. Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me. And I, I, you know, I want the Lord to work in my life. I want to take the small things of this world and have God be concerned for him. But I have to be very careful that I'm not going to fall into the trap and the pitfall of the devil. And Jesus is turning around and he's saying the power that Christ has is not to turn around and to turn God into a little genie that we just rub the bottle, we get three wishes and everything's okay. And that causes us to stumble and it destroys Christians who say, I can't handle God, I hate God. God took my mother away. God didn't do what I wanted him to do. God didn't do this. God didn't do that. And what needs to happen in our hearts is our hearts change to do the will of the Father. So read as the text goes on. It's going to tell us very specifically what the power of God is for. He's going to turn around. He says, then Jesus returned in the what? In the power of the Spirit. And I love that. 
It's, so his temptation, listen to this, was a springboard into even greater power in the spirit. So when you're attacked and you withstand the attacks of the devil, you become stronger. And I love this. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And news of him went throughout all the surrounding regions. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, where he had been brought up. And as, he, as his custom was, you know, what you do, you go to synagogue on Saturday. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So it's his turn to read, and, and as he handed the, uh, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, he, 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 uh, uh, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To be anointed means that the, the, the Lord has, have, has a purpose and a place for you. He set you aside with a gifting. And he's saying, you're right, he's quoting something out of Isaiah. We went through this. Isaiah 61, I believe, and he says, He's anointed me to what? To preach. What? The gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to get a bigger boat. Oh, that's not in there. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So listen to this, and this is critical. Jesus is saying he has the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, and he just outlined to you these six things is what I'm called to do with this wonderful power that I have. The power of the Holy Spirit is to set the captives free, is to liberate people and open the eyes of the blind. You have a monstrosity of a powerful weapon of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to accomplish some things. And when you try to pervert it and to do something else with it, it never does anything. And we go, Lord, why is the power not working in my life? Why am I weak? Well, because you're directing it in the wrong direction. You're manipulating it for your own advantages. When clearly it is set aside. He's anointed me to preach to the poor. I need to tell the good news. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who died to liberate them. To heal the brokenhearted. There is enough people in this world that are suicidal, depressed, and miserable. And we have an obligation to go to them and to say there's hope for an everlasting life in God. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The recovery of sight to the blind. To heal those that are blind, physically and spiritually. To go up to those and to say, you need to see the truth. And so many people have a wall to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That acceptable year of the Lord is really, it's taken of the context to explain the year of Jubilee. Uh, if you go back to our Independence Hall, State Hall of Pennsylvania, where they got the Liberty Bell, and you can see there, there's our Liberty Bell. It's got the big crack in it and tacked right on the side of that bell. It's planted and stamped on it and says, you know, Leviticus 2510. Uh, our forefathers wanted that to be there. And that's the verse that talks about liberty that should be proclaimed throughout our nation. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. And Leviticus 2510 is specifically talking about the year of Jubilee. What a beautiful concept and what a beautiful picture that is, that we should all be able to say, yeah, that's the way we should live. The year of Jubilee was the Jews, they had a, a nation that was set up, and every 50th year they were to turn around and to have a, a, a time where everything, all debts, all transactions were eliminated and wiped out, and all the property went back to its original owners. So if you turned around in your 25th year before the year of Jubilee, you had to sell the farm because you were starving to death, you went out and sold all that you had, and you turned around and said, now I'm living as a pauper and I'm starving on the streets now. But when the year of Jubilee came around, they'd say, look, you get your property back. Hey, look, you ran up your credit cards to, you know, 
couple hundred thousand dollars. You're now in bankruptcy court and you're in, you know, sold the farm and you're, you're starving to death. And the year of Jubilee was a turnaround says all debts are wiped out. You're completely debt free. What a, what a picture of liberty. Wow. You mean I, I get it all back? Wow. I'm, I'm completely out of the hole. Wow. I'm back to breaking, you know, at, at zero. Wow. The, the bondage of debt is to be removed. And what Jesus is saying, the bondage of debt is to be removed. We're here to set people free through the knowledge of Christ that he has liberated and paid the debt for our sins and that we get a free ticket into the kingdom of heaven. And if we're operating in the spirit to liberate other people, you're going to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to see that you're going to, if you've avoided the temptation of taking that power to yourself, that you're going to have power in your life. So he closed his book, as it says, and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him because they knew what that was. That was a verse that was set aside for the Messiah. And then he says, well, if you're all staring at me, how about this for an answer? He says, he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's going to go, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. Did you catch that? This is talking about me. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, oh, what do you mean he's the Messiah? This is the guy that grew up next to us. Is this not Joseph's son? And so he's turning around and they're looking at it and they're going, you can't be the Messiah, you're just the guy next door. This was ordinary, this was simple, this was nothing big, and now you're telling me that you're the one? And Jesus goes, you're right. I've withstood my temptations and my trials. I'm filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be using this to liberate. But check this out. He said to them, yeah, you're you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Now, their response is to say, Jesus, listen to this. You do some, you know, some supernatural things. We've heard that you're a trickster. We heard that you can heal people. You do it right here, right now. Oh, yeah, you're a physician, and what do they say when Jesus is strung up on the cross? Yeah, let's see him get himself down. He thinks he's such a hot ticket. Let's see if he can get himself off of this cross. Well, he will, and he does. But the mindset of the people that are going to reject Christ are the people that are going to turn around and, and demand that God works according to the beat of their drum. Physician, heal yourself. Hey, whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, we've also heard, heard here in your country. They're demanding results. Lord, we want it now. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his own country. You guys won't listen to anything because you're blinded by the way that you think things will be. But I tell you truly, and this is a slap in their faces. He says, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But none of them was Elijah sent to except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now what Jesus is saying, he says, you know, here, nation of Israel, God wants to do work. And God, he's got to point out two examples where God does work outside the country. And what is he saying? Hey, it's not like we're lacking a sick person in the nation of Israel at the time of Elijah, Elisha, two wonderful prophets of God where the power of the Holy Spirit was used. And he turns around and he says, hey, Israel wasn't lacking sick people. It wasn't lacking poor and hungry people. But there were two people that God touched. And you know what? They were outside of the city, outside of the country. Why was that? Because the city, the country, was missing the very elements that made the power of the Holy Spirit work. You come up to this widow. Elijah comes up. First off, it's pretty powerful that he goes up to the king and says, Hey, king, you're living in sin and God's disgusted with you. And to prove it to you, for three and a half years, it's not going to rain. 
So for three and a half years, the drought comes on the land. People are starving to death throughout the land. And Elijah is turning around and he's saying, it's because of this wicked king. And so God leads him to Zarephath, to this widow. And this widow's sitting there and, and, and he kind of leans up on the fence as he comes up to their little house. And he goes to this widow and he says, hey, go get me something to eat. The lady goes, what do you mean get you something to eat? I got a handful of flour in my hand. I got a little bit of oil. My son and I are going to go have it, and then we're going to go die. Okay? That's my outlook on life. That's where I'm at. This is miserable. This is terrible. The plight is hitting the whole place. Elijah says, just go make me something to eat and be quiet. Then you can go die if you want to. Lady says, fine. I'll take the last little bit of what I have, and I will give to you. And Elijah says, if you pour out that oil, if you make a meal, a piece of bread out of that flour, it will never cease to run out. And so the miracle of the oil and the bread continues to go because this lady had what? Such great faith to take the last of what she had and to turn around and to give it to another in faith to God. Faith. Naaman the leper comes up. So here's a Syrian. And we did this story on communion on Wednesday. And you can see this guy. He's turning around. He goes to the prophet. He heard that the prophet in Israel was able to heal him. He comes riding up and he says, hey, I thought there was a prophet that could heal me. And turned around and the prophet doesn't, uh, Elisha doesn't even want to come out to the, and to greet this guy. He says, ah, Syrians. And he turns around and he says, you guys go wash yourself in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman turns around, jumps up and down, and he says, What? I could have washed in any stupid river. Why do I have to come here? This is ridiculous. And he starts storming off until one of Naaman's assistants, his right-hand man, comes up and says, Hey, boss, hey, hey, hey. If the prophet asks you to do something complicated, you do it, you know. You expect him to come out and jump all over the place and wave a little rattle and witch doctor stuff all over you. He's asking you to do something simple. Just go down and wash. Why don't you just do what he says? And you can see Naaman, he goes, Okay, I'll go do what you say. A simple act of obedience. No manipulation, no controlling, no misdirection. To take the word of God and to simply receive it. And when we come to God as a child, when we have the simplicity to just be obedient to the will of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our life. We, we, we have to understand that very simple truth. So many times in our life, we complicate it with all of our formulas, all of our desires, all of our plans, everything that we're going to do for God, instead of allowing God to be God. And, and, and the heart of the power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in your life is the simplicity of just saying, Lord, let your will be done. Lord, your promise says, and if your promise is, then it will be, and that's all I need to know. The when, the where, and the how, that's up to you, Lord. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to demand it. I want to totally rest in you. That is what it means when we as Christians say you need to pick up your cross and follow after me. You have to lay down your life and decide to say, Lord, you're God, I'm not. Take control. People don't like that. So all when they were in the synagogue, when they heard this, were filled with wrath. How dare you insult us, Jesus? How dare you bring up two examples, biblical examples, we may add, uh, but we don't want to look at them, we may add. They're filled with wrath. They're saying this is an insult to us because we don't want to hear about a, a Syrian getting healed. We don't want to hear about some other widow. How dare you show us that God doesn't care about Israel? We're God's chosen people. We're special. God's got to take care of me. So when all those were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, verse 29, and they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. They rejected Jesus. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was, that they might throw him over the cliff. Let's just throw Jesus under the bus because he doesn't do it my way. And then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And what we have to do is to say, Lord, we can't push you, shove you, tempt you, force you, do anything we can to get you to go our way. Christianity is purely allowing the Lord to be Lord. And Jesus is going to go his way. God has a will and a plan for his way in your life. And the only thing you can do is to sit down and say, Lord, then your will be done. Take my life, Lord. 
I surrender it over to you. And that's option A. And option B is misery, pain and suffering. We never get that. We fight, we squabble, we kick, and we say, Lord, we want it to be done this way. And, and Christianity is just allowing it. Even with the promises of God, watch yourself. Look at what you're being drawn after. Even the simplicity of just a boat, which is something good. There's many good things in this world, and they can creep into our life, and they can start to draw us away. I don't care what it is. Watch what's happening in your life, and submit yourself over to the will of God. That's the heart of what we want to take to communion. I want to have the worship team come up. We're going to pass out the elements. We want to have a time of communion. And communion is recognizing, remembering the cross of Jesus Christ and to turn around and to say, Lord, I want you to work in my life. We've been talking about the process of a promise. And if the process of the promise is always that it ends with power, and God wants to put power in your life so that you can overcome the temptations in your life to compromise your life. The seduction of sin leads you to sloth. How's that? Falling asleep and being powerless in your life. Our prayer for this church is that you would be walking in the fullness and the power that you would have and not to be depressed and miserable and suicidal. God loves you. He cares about you. He wants to change you. What we do here is Jesus said we're to take a cup. We're to take the bread. It's to be broken. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. That these were the things that were paid for, the price for you and I to have freedom. Liberty. There's healing in the blood and the body of Christ. I pray that you would walk in the fullness of what the Lord has and you could confess your sin, come to the place of being at the end of yourself, and that you would say, Lord, take my life, all of it. Have your way with me. We're identifying with Christ whose body was broken and our body needs to be broken. We're identifying with the blood that was poured out and we're saying, Lord, pour out my blood, the very life blood of me. Pour it out onto the ground, Lord, so that I could find new life in you.